You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Hey, everyone. I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome to TFM's local books and comic show, and I'm just one of the hosts here, Matthew Rushing, and here with me, at least for the news, is the one, the only, Bruce Gibson. Uh, you know what? I don't know if I'm the one and only, because if you Google my name, I think there's other Bruce Gibsons out there. But... Oh, there could be. There but, could be. But I think are I'm they... the only one who's a Star Trek fan. Uh, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> well, uh, Yeah. But hey, uh, and we're glad to have you. So I'm I'm so glad you're here. We've got so much fun uh, stuff to talk about today, and um, yeah, really excited. We want to say a huge thank you to everybody who's joining us, and you know, make sure, of course, you're doing all the things like following us on social media, like at uh, track.fm or on Facebook at facebook.com slash track.fm. We got the listeners only discussion group. You can join as listeners from all over the world discuss what we talk about here on the network. Uh, of course, you can also find uh, us uh, with a website at track.fm where you can see all the stuff we're doing uh, there podcast wise as well as go to the contact section you can send us an email so go to trek.fm slash contact choose a show uh and uh you can talk to uh bruce and i and and uh which would be really fun we'd love to to catch up with you there so um you know uh, the other thing you could do Support us through Patreon. Uh, Patreon is the place where uh, we help uh, make sure that all of the shows here keep coming to you each and every week. Um, it does cost quite a bit to, to do all this. So we would love your help. Uh, and we've got some great associate producers here through Patreon. Casey Petit and Greg Rosier, we really appreciate their support. They make sure that each and every show here on the network, as well as Literary Tracks, comes to you Um and so, again, if you like what we do here, go to patreon.com slash trek.fm and become part of our team and make sure that we can keep doing this. So, uh, Bruce, uh, we have uh, a couple of comics that we're going to be talking about because uh, year five is coming to a close. And uh, I have to say, you know, one of the things that we've talked about with the year five is this the fact that, well, there's a, been a lot going on, and I feel like this is really all bringing it together. We're going to talk about issues 22 and 23, and so uh, I would say that um, issue 22, we really start to bring some stuff together with the revelations that we get about Gary Seven, which I thought was fantastic. We're finally getting that now. Yeah, I was expecting at this point, and I was certainly hoping, yes, that we would get to this point uh, by the times we got to the last few issues. And Mm -hmm. I'm not disappointed. I'm very pleased that we're finally getting the answers that we deserve. 
Yeah. No, I, I agree with you 100% in that. Um, you know, I thought it, the idea that um, we learn in this issue that Gary Seven had been the one that had helped the Tholians with this weapon test where we ended up, you know, getting bright eyes, saving him, um, I thought was really fascinating. And, you know, it, it's interesting, too, because, you know, Spock makes this pronunciation in front of because they're in front of uh, the Federation Council. And he's like, but we know Gary Seven to be, you know, somebody who uh, is on the side of galactic stability. So that was really interesting because this whole thing, um, it really leaves you wondering as to still like what the whole process is here for Gary Seven. Like you're still pretty worried, I think, about like. Why would he uh, like? What would be his whole thought process of helping the the Tholians do something so terrible? Right, and then you've got Spock, of course, like you're saying, saying, "Hey, G- Gary's a good guy," and yeah, but we know that he's been not so good <laughs> that he's been trying to destroy them and mm-hmm. and get in their way and kill them. And so it's interesting that Spock is actually saying, you know, he's someone that is out there doing good when he also doesn't understand why Gary's doing what he's doing because right. it isn't. Yeah. I think, I think that's uh, the really interesting thing here is that we still don't quite like, we, we don't have a behind the scenes as to, you know, what it is that Gary's up to. And, uh, but and it was like you said, it was kind of strange because like Spock seems to be on his side, which is a little bit weird because, you know, um, hasn't he been responsible for, like you said, almost like hunting down <laughs> these characters yeah, uh, and like trying to kill them multiple times? So, yeah, that part like threw me a little bit. And, and thankfully, I mean, we're going to get some serious revelations as to exactly what's going on here uh, in the end. Um, which I I love, like the next issue is kind of going to blow open this entire thing and give us exactly what it is that's going on. I know. I mean, that's what's making it hard for me to talk about it, because really the next issue, we really get into the meat of this. I mean, mm-hmm. this issue 22 is setting up, I'm guessing, a trilogy of mm-hmm. issues to come up with the conclusion to this year five series so this is 22 we have 23 i guess more than a trilogy because we at least get up to uh not channel but we at least get up to issue number five i mean Mm -hmm. 25 boy i i don't know what i'm doing today but um i i just think that spock is probably looking at this in his logical sense of he knows what Gary's mission is. It may not make sense to them, but he's probably thinking there's a logical reason why Mm -hmm. he's doing what he's doing. We just don't know the answers, which is as the readers, we feel the same way. Right. Yeah. uh, I think the other really, I think fascinating thing here is, and there are a couple of things that I want to kind of mention. One is that we get the Andorian, I, and I think you would say her name, Renee, uh, who is running for uh, Federation president here, really questioning Spock and the crew of the Enterprise and how you know she is somebody who is much more on the side of protectionism. Uh, and, you know, really, she 
Spock even calls out, you know, the, the idea that the bias of opinion that challenge her own, you know, and I thought that was really interesting kind of playing with that. But in some ways, like she's not all wrong. And I think that was also interesting as well. Like in the end, like, and yeah, we're, we'll talk about it in a second, but like the Tholians are trying to take over the Federation. Like she's, and that's what I thought was really interesting is like, She's not all wrong. She just doesn't have all the facts, right? Nobody does on the on the ground here. And so what was really interesting is is kind of watching this come together uh to to make some sense here and and this like you said just it does a great job I think of kind of bringing a lot of stuff that's happened in year 5 together to kind of set us up for the end. Well, yeah, because if the Tholians are coming to attack the Federation, why isn't everybody mm-hmm. else really freaking out, especially from this Enterprise crew? But I think it's because of Bright Eyes. They have this trust in Bright Eyes who's mm-hmm. telling them that this isn't what, you know, the Tholians aren't going to do this unless they have some kind of reason. And, right. Yeah. And even Kirk resigns himself from dealing with this. Because he's the one who's supposed to meet with the president, yet he sends Spock, Yohora, and Chekhov down in his place while he goes elsewhere to go do something personal. And it seems to me as if Kirk has resigned himself from the Enterprise because this is the end of the five-year mission. And he mentally has told is, is in his head saying, I'm, I've stepped down. I'm taking a back role to all of this. And he doesn't see the Tholian situation that as being much of a threat because of bright mm-hmm. eyes. Right. Well, and, and I think that's a, the one of the things that I wanted to, to mention I thought was so interesting was Kirk. The thing that he does is he goes to where Carol Marcus uh, is stationed, which it looks like she's stationed on a, a uh, scientific research area in Monument Valley, which is kind of strange uh, why you would deface one of Monument Valley's um, massive pillars of stone, put a base of, of scientific exploration on there. It seems uh, very against science in the first place to destroy a natural phenomenon like that. But anyway, he, he leaves flowers and he leaves a book for David um, close to where that is and, and then walks away because, of course, we all know that, you know, she he's been asked to have no part in David's life. And there's this uh, there's this whole thing in which Kirk is losing the family and the Enterprise. It's about to be taken away from him. He's about to be made an admiral. He doesn't have this family that he could have had this 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 opportunity to have a family with carol and david and he also is feeling the sting of spock telling him no of being the uh you know next captain of the enterprise and so he he kind of i think feels betrayed by spock in some ways and 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 i think what was really interesting is kind of seeing how much this all is affecting the character and the person of kirk uh and and that is not something I think that we're necessarily used to. Um, just this very deep, personal, soulful uh, pain that we see Kirk in. Yeah, because we see him on the bridge and he just seems devastated that Spock isn't going to take the Enterprise. Yep. And he's alone there on the bridge, which is some beautiful artwork of the bridge and him standing on it. 
But Mm -hmm. I also kept thinking back to the Lost Years novel, because we recently discussed that, which takes place in this same time frame, and it approaches it a little differently. But still, it's Spock rejecting the Enterprise. In that book, he was going to take a science vessel, you know, and it's it's. Kirk leaving his baby behind, but nobody he can trust is going to take care of it for him, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. in both of those situations. And so he does have a real life baby, a son that he can't even mm-hmm. see. And now he's losing this yep. baby, you know, yep. to your point. It's like everything he gets that he loves is taken away from him. Yet mm-hmm. he keeps going on. A hundred percent. I mean, I, I think you know honestly you you're you're really just kind of nailing exactly what kirk is feeling and i think it makes for just such a fascinating thing like i and it and it i think this is what makes this issue really interesting um and so i, I think it's really well done you know i i love that we have uh, such a i really kind of love that we have such a pain like for Kirk uh, in this. And I, I think what it does is it reads really interestingly into issue 23 as we look at that. And, you know, here we find and we get the massive revelations about what Gary Seven has been behind, what Aegis has been behind, uh, and what they're actually trying to do. And I mean, it is at the same level as every bond villain out there like that's basically their goal and which i thought was kind of hysterical <laughs> well yeah because you know it does remind me gary seven kind of reminds me of a bond character <laughs> even from the original yeah. series you know i some of this i wasn't that surprised about though I mean, it's like Aegis is behind this, but I, I mean, we've always kind of known that there's some reason, but it really is about correcting history. But it's not that history mm-hmm. is off course. It's just they don't like how the future ends up playing out. And they go through this whole explanation of what happens with, you know, the Klingons and Praxis blowing up to what's happened with the Cardassians, like, for example, taking over Bajor and the Borg mm-hmm. and all these things are coming in the future. And they're reacting to this as if this is a slow death to the galaxy, that this is the yep. thing that's tearing it apart. So we've got to start this over. And so we're going to start this over with the Tholians because yep. they have no... They've got nothing in this game. They're going to help just like lock everything down with their webs and then Aegis is going to control everything. Yeah, I mean, and they talk about the idea that the Tholians are unified and in that unity, uh, they're going to be able to create a universe that doesn't have these issues. And I think, you know, in some ways that's really interesting, this idea of you know, uh, trying to unite behind uh, an alien species to which is more of like kind of a hive mentality and everything. But I think obviously, you know, we know that the danger of that is that these these aliens um, are that what they're trying to do 
is is wrong still like you can't because what i thought was really interesting is aegis is really coming off as these this godlike group you know they're making the decisions right and i get why you'd want to make those decisions but they don't have the right to make these decisions that's not again it it's just it's not their right to do this um and so i think that is super fascinating to me and it makes me think of a lot of things like are the, is Aegis involved in what's going on throughout the whole universe? I mm-hmm. think so. I mean, I don't think it's just this sector of, of the universe, but it seems like this is the sector where all these bad things can happen. Yeah. Because he's never mentioned anything that happens in the Delta Quadrant or the Gamma Quadrant. He mm-hmm. didn't even mention the Dominion in this. Yep. But, you know if they can see that far into the future that they want to change it, it makes me wonder what do, do what haven't we seen past the 24th century? That's so devastating because even mm-hmm. though these things have happened, bad things always happen, but the galaxy right. moves on and the galaxy yep. has moved on from our standpoint, what we know what happens in the future. But this tells me, Oh, something like really bad comes after this. And yep. to the point that they're going to rewrite history. Well, and I mean, what it, I, the thing that they kind of show us, you know, in the in these panels is we see all of the things that happen, you know, uh, from, like you said, Praxis blowing up. I mean, we see all the way even to Picard uh, and, you know, what happens at uh, the shipping yards there and on Mars, right? You know, I mean, so we're... we're throwing all this together is that they're seeing that the galaxy is in a state that to which it's never going to get beyond these kind of issues. And, and yet at the same time, I think what is kind of important for, uh, and, and, you know, Kirk is kind of arguing is like, is it, it's not your right, you know, like it's not your right to, to make this choice. Like, um, and, and I think it's interesting here because, you know, uh, we have Kirk being the one that goes to confront Gary Seven and he leaves Spock in charge of being the one who's going to try and, you know, uh, get everything taken care of in the sense of like, he put Spock in charge of the Enterprise. And I, I thought that that was really fascinating. And, and one of the kind of what we were talking about last issue we end up with i think he's also trying to show spock that you know spock thinks his emotionalism is is not something that's good for command uh and that he can't work with his logical side and his emotional side at the same time and it'd be good for command and i think one of the reasons i think he chooses spock for this mission is i think he's actually trying to teach spock that no you're emotional side and your logical side can work together to make command work. And you think Spock would have learned that because when he confronted Gary seven, Gary's trying to persuade Spock onto his side of things because it's very logical. And Spock says, well, unfortunately for you, I'm not yet a being of pure logic. So it works to his favor. That balance is his strength and he's yep. going to abandon that. I would think after this that he would learn that there's an advantage yep. to having both. 
No, I 100% agree with you. And it, and it makes it, uh, this is one of the things where I do feel like um, we kind of, uh, it, it, it creates a little bit of an issue for me because of, of, I know that they're obviously trying to move the, the character. Like, you know, we're, we are trying to move Spock that way, right? Um, and yet, at the same time, I do feel like this lesson or, or what what's happening in this issue should teach him that he doesn't need to do that if that makes sense like i like it because i think it's it's doing exactly what kirk wants it to do but it also seems to be kind of hurting what it is that they're trying to do for the character himself right if that makes any sense yeah i'm a little confused by that direction unless there's something that comes up later in the issue of why he's so determined to get rid of his emotions because even the previous mm-hmm. issue he kind of gives old Kylo Ren in the turbo lift and he's hitting it, you know, <laughs> like mm-hmm. having a spasm in there, just like Kylo Ren did in uh, Star Wars. Yep. But yep. Um, yeah, I don't know. And, you know, the other thing I just want to bring up real quick, because the one big panel where you see Spock and it's showing all the different, you know, flashes into the future. And I guess they do kind of address, in a sense, the Dominion War, because they do show the Defiant firing at something. But um, mm-hmm. they do point out a thousand year wick until the galaxy itself burns i don't know mm-hmm. all we see is explosions in space i don't know if that's referring to the burn in discovering the 32 32nd century but if it is then that i mean that's still not enough to rewrite everything you know again something right. bigger might be coming up and again why is spock going to try to control his emotions with colinar what is happening here in these stories besides what we've seen is going to make him want to go that route when we see emotions work to his advantage. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I think that, I mean, it's, it's really interesting what they're trying to do. Um, I just don't necessarily think that it quite, there's, there's some issues I have with, with where they're trying to go with, with the whole Spock section. Um, yeah, same and here. That's why I'm wondering so, if something's going to play out more. Because we have Kirk, in a sense, getting to the point that he's going to abandon the Enterprise. And we have Spock working to abandon his emotions. Right. And everyone's going to move on. And I understand what's happening with Kirk and why he's going to do what he's going to do. He's been pushed to that, but what is pushing Spock? Yeah, it's a great question. And I I mean, I do, you know, as we've been talking through this and some of the things we've kind of had issues with as we've moved around in this series, I think one of the things is that I'm, I'm learning to trust, you know, that they, they have a place where they're going. Um, you know, some of the things, you know, and, and in all honesty, I mean, obviously, I think with the last time we talked about the comics, one of the things that didn't really work for us and still doesn't really work for us is kind of how Spock went back in time, you know, and everything and, and, and all that. But this does seem like we really do. We, we've got a plan as to how, you know, we want to bring the character and bring everything together uh, that they've been working on for all of these years. And so I think that we're going to be happy with it. Um, but obviously, we'll just have to continue to to wait and see. So, um, well, Bruce, you know, it's always fun um, when we're going to have a new series. Um, 
that that's going to happen. And we do have a new series that's going to that's going to come around, um, and it's the Coda series. And what makes this so fun um, is we get to do something we haven't done for a while. Uh, we've got some covers that are coming out, and we are going to judge some books by their cover, uh, which I'm really excited to do uh, because, gosh, let's let's start with Moments Asunder. And uh, this is the first cover for this new series that's coming out. And I don't know about you, Bruce, but I'm a fan. Like, I think this cover is legit. I do too. I mean, come on. It's got the Enterprise E. It's firing some phaser or something going on there. And it's got all my favorite colors going on in the background in space, the blues, the purples and such. But there's all yep. these lines. And we know mm-hmm. that there's something going on with timelines or universes. So that kind of represents that behind it, the clouds and the stars and the lines behind the Enterprise E. But there's a part of the hole that's just a little cut off on the cover. Mm-hmm. And I got on the shore leave a virtual panel to ask if there was going to be covers put together. And David mm-hmm. Back said that's what they're going to do. And that also leads us to the second cover. But I want to know, well, besides that, what you thought of the first cover. Yeah, so I really like this first cover. Um, I think it's really cool. Um, I do think, um, I, I always love the Enterprise E. I think one of the things that I really loved is how this kind of reminds me of the time stream from the Temporal Cold War, you yes. know, a little bit. So I, I thought that was really cool. The The artist has really done some homework here. Um, yeah, I think it's interesting because I don't think we've ever seen a phaser shot come from the Enterprise E at that spot. So that's interesting coming from the underside of the, the, the phaser array on the bottom there of the secondary hull. Um, that's a strange place I feel like for that phaser shot to be coming from, but okay. Uh, otherwise I think this is a really cool cover. And like you said, it does lead into the second cover for, uh, the ashes of tomorrow, which I think is phenomenal. I mean, it it takes everything that I like about that first cover and I think it one ups it. Like it's it's the I I mean, I hate to say it, but it's the better cover of the two. Uh, it's so cool. Well, yeah, it's got more going on too. I mean, you've got the new Deep yeah. Space 9 station there, which I keep wanting to see more of that. Yes. <laughs> you know. Then we have the Alventine there, which is Ezri Dax's ship and then we've got those lines and everything but we also have glass shattering which makes me mm-hmm. also wonder if that doesn't just represent time but if mm-hmm. that also represents the mirror universe good question not one that I had actually thought of um, but it I, I yeah goodness it absolutely could have something to do with that that's an interesting thought Bruce um, I try <laughs> I mean, but I, it, I mean, it's interesting because I just wouldn't have thought about it bringing in anything to do with the mere universe. Because like, on that shortly panel, they did mention that they are going to address some of the mere universe in this from the books, from the mere universe which books. I think is really interesting. It's a great choice. Um, you know, obviously, one of the things that you know this whole lit first has done is play with the mere universe. Um, at, you know, I mean, they're, they're, they're using uh, all of the things they had written in every single time period 
Uh, so I think it's really cool, the opportunity to be able to do that. Um, so yeah, the shattering of the mirror, that's really cool. And I also love, and and this is the sad part thing, I, I think the most, Bruce, is that as you can see, the new DS9 is slowly fading. And I think, you know, this gives us our real big indication of where we're going. Uh, this is, we're going to be bringing this all to a close, right? You know, this is all going to be ending. And, um, you know, that's, that's sad. You know, I, I, it's, it's really hard, uh, to, to leave this universe. The one I think that, you know, both you and I, um, kind of love so much. And so to, to see that, I was like, oh, it kind of, it, it honestly got me in the feels really to see that. Yeah, you know, I, I've known a lot of people that say, you know, how sad this is, that it's coming to an end. And yes, I've I've loved this for the last 20 years. It's always still there. You know, as you know, we're rereading a lot of those books. So I'm getting to relive it. But at the same time, I'm excited to see that we're putting a cap end to this as a, as opposed to it just dies off and it just ends. You know, that there's yes. no resolution. There's open storylines that never get resolved it just yep. they just fade away and it's just exciting to me it's like ooh, now we get the last chapter of mm. everything we've read but i also believe that we will return to this someday i don't know anything no one has ever hinted anything to me but in the books you know they can do anything we can revisit this yep. timeline or whatever you call it at this you know at any point in time I mean, I would say, Bruce, you're 100% correct. Obviously, the the best thing about the books is the opportunity to be able to do anything uh, whenever you want. And obviously, um, this is where things are now because of what's going on with what's on television. And, you know, TV shows and everything don't last forever. And so maybe one day we'll be able to return to this, like you said. But, you know, I, I agree. I think it's really awesome that, and I that short leave panel I thought was really neat to be able to see like look, we're wanting to give this closure. We're wanting to allow fans to be able to have a place to be able to celebrate this thing that they've loved for so long. And like you said, you know, one of their big things was not to do what Star Wars did, which was just to end it. You know, uh, and I think I think that's a better way to go for me personally as well. Like give us resolution, you know, and I think it, I think it respects the fans really well. Uh, and I think that's the thing that I'm excited about is that they respect us enough to be able to say, you know what, you invested so much time into this. And I think the coolest part is that CBS is letting them do it in the first place. Yeah. Like, you know that, I mean, because in all honesty, look, the books don't make them a lot of money, right? Like, they don't. Yeah. Um, it's a tip. But, right. But I think the fact that they, it shows that they do care about the fans that have been in this for so long. And I think that is is something to which um, I will forever be grateful for, you know, CBS and Paramount to, to do. Um, and, and to allow them to do so. Yeah, I am. I'm super excited about this, man. Oh, I'm pumped. I'm, I'm like, we're nearing the, you know, we're in the last half of the year and this is the mm -hmm. thing I'm probably the most excited about out of anything. 
Yeah. So, yeah, I can't wait. Would you, uh, so would you say this is the final countdown then, I guess? Yes. It's the final <laughs> countdown. Well, Bruce, uh, I think it's time for uh, Chris and I to hit up our interview with Cassandra. Yes, who's also a big Star Trek fan. Well, Chris, uh, I'm so excited because I can't remember, honestly, the last time that we had a brand new yeah. author to Star Trek books. It's been a while, and we are so excited to have Cassandra Rose Clark here with us to talk about her brand new Star Trek book, Shadows Have Offended. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you on. And as Matthew said, I can't remember the last time we had a, a new author in the, the, uh, the, the team of wonderful Star Trek authors that we love to read. So. <laughs> One thing I was really interested in, Cassandra, is, and especially since this is um, your first time to be on the show, I'm just wondering what your Star Trek story is, because everybody has one. And right. <laughs> so I'm wondering how you came to the franchise and what made you fall in love with Star Trek? Yeah, so I uh, I actually watched TNG when I was a kid. Uh, I just I have this vague memory of my dad watching it and me. I was very young. Um, I would have been maybe five or six, uh, just sort of sitting in the living room watching it with him. Um, but where I really started to kind of fall in love with it was actually in graduate school um, because I went back and rewatched all of TNG. Um, nice. I actually rented it from the video store and very nice. Watched it like literally <laughs> from episode one all the way through and just, um, fell basically fell in love with it um kind of for the first time even though i had seen it mm -hmm. before um and so that was really sort of the start of it for me and so i watched like i said i watched all of tng um i started watching all of ds9 i watched the animated series the original series like i just started watching all of the star treks and kind of getting caught up with it um and this a few years after that was when the new reboot movie came out and so i got kind of involved in it from that end as well. But TNG was really kind of my first love. Um, that was the one I watched as a kid. And that was mm -hmm. the one that sort of brought me back into Star Trek. Um, and that's the one that has my favorite characters and just that's kind of my Star Trek. And so it was really exciting when I got invited to write a TNG book out of all of the Star mm -hmm. Trek series. Yeah, that's I mean, that's such a neat thing, you know, uh, because I think I have such a similar story, you know, I grew up in, and like TNG was the thing that was on television at the time. And then like, I, I really got into watching like Deep Space Nine and then that became my Star Trek. And then of course Voyager and, and, and then Enterprise and like, you know, I did the same thing watching all of the Star Treks, you know, and it, it is so true. Like so many people, they end up with like having that one Star Trek show that just kind of ends up being their Star Trek, you know, the one that they right. gravitate most towards, which I think is so neat. It just shows how each of the different series, you, you know, have a way of kind of like capturing people. And it's kind of neat that there's so many different series to be able mm -hmm. to do that. And so... Well, Cassandra, um, if I can interject real quick, just before we get away from talking about TNG and DS9, you know, the story has very much a TNG episodic feel to it, which we'll talk about later. But your use of the Ferengi is very much influenced by DS9. So maybe you fell in love with TNG, but if you hadn't gone to DS9, I'm not sure if you would have been able to pull this story together 
in the way that you did. No, I think that's definitely true. Um, and I, I was, I definitely really love DS9 and I specifically really love the Ferengi mm-hmm. from DS9. So I was actively pulling, there were some specific episodes um, of DS9 that I was actually pulling from because I, the Ferengi and TNG are kind of, um, they're kind of silly, but I love the way, <laughs> <laughs> I love the way DS9 took those characters and reinterpreted that, or took that species, yeah. I should say, and reinterpreted them in a way that just felt really fun. Um, and so I've oh always God. loved the T- DS9 Ferengi, yeah. for sure. Yeah. That's so awesome. Like, I, and just overall, I know you said you, uh, that TNG is your favorite and it has your favorite characters. But I mean, I would love to kind of like overall of Star Trek, like who are the characters that ended up standing out to you in it, you know, from any of the series that just like really ended up having an impact on you? Honestly, um, probably the biggest one would be Data, which is uh, he is, mm-hmm. of course, from TNG. Um, but he his character and his character art actually arc actually inspired my first original novel, which is the Mad Scientist Daughter. Um, and so like his, his whole sort of search and desire to be human and have emotions was something that really struck me when I was, I had just finished graduate school and I was, cause I went to graduate school for creative writing. So I was trying to write my like great American novel or whatever. Um, and his, that, that idea of an Android searching for emotions for human emotions really, really struck me. And so that idea sort of became the seed of that book. And that book is sort of a response to Data's story. So he is definitely that character, that Star Trek character that, I kind of fell the most in love with, uh, for sure. Wow. That's, that's so awesome. Um, I, you know, obviously to Star Trek has been something that just endured for so long, you know, and it, it continues today. Um, and I, I'm just wondering for you, like, what do you think has made Star Trek last this long? What it, what is it? And it, and, it, and what has it been for you that's kept it going? I know for, so for me, the, the, probably the number one thing that I love about Star Trek um, and that I know my, I have a friend who's like a huge TNG fan as well. And so we sort of, we, our love of Star Trek sort of fed off of each other. And I know she, she feels this way too. And that's sort of like the wholesomeness and just sort of general positivity of it. Um, that for me feels really refreshing um, because yeah, like sometimes I do want to sit down and watch like Game of Thrones. Um, if anybody remembers that show <laughs> or like a horror movie or, you know, something dark and gritty, but sometimes I don't. And sometimes I do want to see like sort of humanity at their best. And I think a lot of people are like that. And I think that's one of the reasons why Star Trek endures, um, and why it just each generation sort of rediscovers it because there is something just very, very comforting about it. While I mean, it's while still having sort of the adventure and just like, I don't know, like the, the action and the weird sci-fi stuff. There's something just very, it feels familiar. And a lot of times it feels mm-hmm. like coming home whenever I'm watching um, even like one of the new Star Treks. Like even I was watching mm-hmm. um, the new animated one which a lot of people had problems with, but I was like, it just feels kind of like TNG. And so even though it's mm-hmm. silly and, and yeah. funny, I was like, I feel like this feels so comforting and familiar to yeah. me. And I think that's, I think a lot of people mm-hmm. feel that way. Well, Lower Decks, I mean, if you love TNG, it is a wonderful homage to yeah. that series <laughs> because the detail that's pulled right. from that series could only be done by a group of people who truly love and know the original content. Mm-hmm. Right. 
Yeah, I 100% agree. I mean, I, I, to me, Lower Decks has actually been my favorite thing that has been on, you know, the Paramount Plus mm-hmm. from Star Trek. And I, I think you just kind of hit on something, even though there's like a like a over-the-top zaniness for that show, there is a wholesomeness to it. And I really love that word that you chose because I think for me, especially all of classic Star Trek that I think of, there is kind of this wholesomeness. There is this like um, traditional understanding of like what's the best of humanity and that portrayed is something that is very comforting, you know, in a way that like as much as I love it, like a Game of Thrones, Mm -hmm. you know, that's not that show. You know, and so I really I, I think you nailed something that has been percolating maybe in my brain for a while when it comes to like what I still love about Star Trek. And I think you just nailed it. So that's oh, really that's cool. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, so how tell us a little bit like before we kind of get into the genesis of Shadows of Offended, how did you get asked to write you know, a a Star Trek book. Yeah. So um, it was really kind of felt like this fluke thing. Um, I wrote a couple of books in the Halo universe. um, And I, the, the editor for the Halo books also works on the Star Trek books. And I was at a Halo conference and he had read my Halo books and he said, I really enjoyed them. Do you like Star Trek? (laughs) I was like, do I like Star (laughs) Trek? Um, And then he he was like, well, we're thinking about doing a TNG book. Do you like TNG? And I was like, Yes, that's my favorite one. Are you kidding me? Um, so it just, it sort of felt like everything just sort of fell into place. Um, and so, of course, I jumped at the chance because I, I honestly never thought that I would get to write a TNG book um, because I had read them sort of back, like I said, when I finished grad school and I was just starting my writing career. I had read the ones from the 90s. And I just, I was like, they're never going to publish like books like this, these like standalone mm-hmm. TNG books. And then that's what I got asked to to write, which was just really cool. For me, that was quite refreshing because I remember in the 90s reading those books and I have fun memories of a trip that I made to Russia and I took some books with me and I didn't have other stuff to do at times. So I was reading those and I felt like I'm taking in an episode. And, mm-hmm. you know, right. and I love the books that we have now, but they have become very serialized and very involved. And I enjoyed going back to having that sort of AB plot episodic feel in a story. Mm-hmm. And like you, a little bit surprised right. to see those being published again, but I'm glad they are. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was surprised when they said that's what they mm-hmm. wanted to do, but I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to go for it for sure. Well, and I, I think it's interesting because they're bringing kind of like what we, fans have termed the lit verse mm-hmm. to an end with Coda. And so to be able to write with these characters, though, still you want to do that. And the only way to do that is to kind of play in the series mm-hmm. again. And so, uh, I mean, it, it it makes sense in that on that front, which, you know, I'm glad that then it gave a writer like you the opportunity to do something that you were so excited about, which makes me wonder then, you know, where did the genesis for Shadows of Offended come from? Is it something that you had been kind of like thinking about for years uh, that you would like to do? Or yeah, where did some of this come from? Yeah, so actually, so I got invited to do it and I was so excited. And then I was also kind of paralyzed with terror um, because Star Trek fans are so, 
you know, demanding might be the nice way of putting it. And um, was I, when I was coming up with sort of pitches, I was just like, it was almost like I forgot everything I'd ever known about Star Trek. Um, and so <laughs> I was kind of um, really sort of working through a lot of ideas. Um, and I wound up kind of going with, and I talk about this on another podcast with sort of my standard, like, oh, I need a plot, which is there's a mysterious illness. Let's figure out what's going on. Um, and then I was also outlining this right, like right at the start of COVID, like right mm -hmm. as it was sort of emerging. And so that certainly kind of was an unintentional influence. Um, and that's of course where I got the, the Crusher plot. Um, and I, I knew I sort of wanted to write about Crusher and Troy. Um, so that was an obvious fit for Crusher. And then I needed another sort of B plot um, to figure something, you know, to, to kind of round it out. And I decided to go with Troy because I knew I wanted to write about both of the female characters, the female uh, sort of commanders on the ship. Um, and so I was like, well, I love, I love the Betazoids. Let's, let's play around in the Betazoid sort of culture. And that's where the Troy and Worf storyline kind of grew out of. That's really cool um, because and I noticed that and I loved that focus and mainly because, you know, so many books, they kind of focus and even just like you look at the TNG movies, like it's Picard and Data show, you know, and really nobody else gets any, you know, play. And so I really loved that this book, you had a specific focus to play with characters and especially playing with Troy and Worf, a relationship that not a lot of people are always right. a huge fan of. Mm -hmm. So like giving this opportunity to kind of see that relationship kind of budding and building um, was really cool. So I, I just wanted to talk a little bit about like, focusing specifically, you know, on each of these characters, especially like with Troy and Crusher and Worf. What was it that you were hoping that to be able to do with these characters that you felt like I just haven't seen this before? Well, I definitely wanted to explore the Troy and Worf relationship because I like it. <laughs> and I know it's I know it's unpopular, but I always liked it. I always liked it in the show. I always thought it was kind of sweet and interesting, um, even though it obviously doesn't work out. Um, and so I wanted, and, and especially since the publisher said specifically, we're looking for something sort of in the later season, season seven. And so I knew I wanted to just sort of play around with that relationship. And so that was something kind of going into it that I definitely wanted to explore. Um, and I also just wanted to see Troy and Crusher doing stuff. Um, I feel like they don't do a whole, whole lot in the show. And they are, I think, very they have very important roles on the ship. Um, and I wanted to just sort of explore what those roles look like um, and sort of put them in situations where they could shine. And so as I was sort of developing the plot, that was kind of my thought process was how can I really showcase Troy? How can I really showcase Crusher? Um, how can I sort of explore this Troy worth relationship while they're still being professional without it being the focus of the book? Um, because I knew if I made it the focus of the people would be like, yeah. Um, so that's, that's kind of, was kind of my thought process with that. Um, was just wanting to, to sort of see those characters uh, in action. How did you feel about the Troy Wharf relationship? The first time you saw it, you, you said you rewatched in graduate school, right? So the first time right. it came along, it was kind of out of the blue at the end of the seventh season, and there wasn't even time to develop it. And it felt very odd to a lot of fans. And 
after going to graduate school, you said you went for creative writing. Maybe did did you see that twist in the writing any differently at that point in your um, life compared with the you know the first time you saw it? Yeah, I did. I actually, I know a lot of people say it comes out of nowhere. Um, I actually don't think it totally mm. comes out of nowhere um, because uh, Worf and Troy sort of have this relationship with because throughout through Alexander, right? Alexander kind of comes and so she becomes a sort of surrogate mm-hmm. mother to him. So the idea of them eventually having a romantic relationship um, didn't feel totally out of the blue to me. Um, Although I'll admit you, I do think you have to kind of go back and really think about it. And also keep in mind, I was watching the whole, I watched the whole series in like two months or something, Mm -hmm. right? Like I've been watched it. So um, I was, I had seen the the Alexander's kind of storyline, like, three weeks before I saw um, all good things. So it was a lot closer in my mind. So I think that helped me to see it a little bit more, Um, you know, so so to me, I can, I can kind of see where it comes from. Um, But I also sort of like the unexpectedness of it. And I feel like in season seven, um, the show is taking more risks. And I think that was one of the risks they decided to take, Mm -hmm. um, which I always appreciate as a writer. Well, it's funny you mentioned that, like the idea of like being able to binge a show and you watch it all in succession so you can pick up certain things. And I, I to me, um, that was my experience, honestly, with we mentioned earlier Game of Thrones, you know, and like I didn't have as much of a problem with the end of the show because I had watched it all in such quick succession. Things felt more natural than they would maybe if you'd been waiting years between seasons and you're like your mind as a fan is racing and, you know, I didn't have time for any of that, you know, so I'm just getting what they gave me without any expectations. And I I think that's really interesting when you can go back and do that. And I, I have to say, you know, was never necessarily a huge fan of that relationship, but I thought the way that you wrote them really was so much fun. And there was, and part of that was the fact that this book be had more levity to it. Like it, we weren't super serious, and and that allowed us to be able to play with some of these characters in ways that they don't normally get played with. And so, just to kind of see them navigate getting into a relationship and being on the same ship, and what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, you know, and maybe sometimes not necessarily being appropriate because you're on Beta Z and Beta Z people don't tend to always be appropriate in the first place. Um, you know, like all of that, I think really worked. So I really appreciated the interactions between them and that it really made that relationship feel much more whole and like, so to me, that being your thought process, I think that's one of the things that worked the best for me is like making that relationship feel more natural. Well, that's awesome to hear because that was definitely kind of one of my big goals going into the book. Um, was to to sort of show how that relationship might have come to be as opposed to just popping up randomly mm-hmm. in the last episode. Well, and, you know, Chris knows this, but I'm a huge Crusher fan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> always have been. Uh, part of it is I think I always uh, had a little bit of a crush on Gates, and especially as a kid. Yeah, Matthew is the um, captain of the so, Beverly Crushers bowling team. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm just saying. She's amazing. And so I really liked that you gave her more to do in this book. And part of what I loved about it was that I felt like her and Picard were kind of mirrors for each other because where they are in this the series, quote unquote, like the, they feel tired. 
like they've been through so much and like they're both kind of just looking for relaxation and try to like and she doesn't get it here and i just love that you kind of were pushing her to the brink and like she makes this cool breakthrough and we really give this character the opportunity to do something she's never done before which is make first contact you know and like i just thought what a great experience for this character to be able to see and like that there's so much more to beverly than just being wesley's mom or the doctor on the ship like she has so much more dimension yeah that that was another one of my definitely one of my goals um because she she was always, I always felt like she was sort of like the mom character mm-hmm. um, on the show. <laughs> and so I wanted to, I wanted to sort of take her out of that role um, and give her a chance to, to, to basically kind of do commandy stuff, right? Like, like make first contact and, and, and figure out, you know, how to sort of save her team and her crew, um, even when she's not necessarily feeling totally confident about it. With um, some of the other the characters one of the things that i you know uh, and a focus that i saw was on picard and his just kind of like being super grumpy in this book and i'm wondering where that kind of came from in your writing process for picard um i think it was because he is in the the funnier uh lighter storyline which is the one on beta z um and, you know, I've always loved the Picard-Luxana interactions. I've always found them. I, I like Luxana a lot. I think she's funny. Um, and I always found her interactions with him quite funny as well. Um, so a lot of it was kind of playing up, um, playing up that sort of grumpiness of him being in a place where he doesn't want to be and having to do things he doesn't necessarily feel like, is, like are his strength, um, which is, in this case, sort of dealing with a bunch of upset Betazoids. Um, so a lot of it was just trying to sort of pull some humor mm-hmm. um, and just sort of really play up that sort of stuffy Picard persona with like the, the wild Betazoids and they're just <laughs> spilling everything out and, and being so dramatic. Yeah. Um, so that's definitely where that was kind of coming from. <laughs> Betazoids gone wild. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine that video? <laughs> <laughs> well it is funny because like i i do think that luxana puts picard on his worst foot in the sense that like he just lets her get to him mm-hmm. and that's something that like i guess later picard especially movie picard he kind of loosens up a little bit mm-hmm. um and yeah i think that was something that was really interesting to watch him just be so uncomfortable and part of that i I got the feeling like he just kind of feels a little bit tired too. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like he needs a vac. Like everybody on the enterprise felt like they needed a vacation and like they were hoping for one. And then this, this whole, you know, wacky experience happens to all of them and they don't really get what they're looking for, but then they get something that they weren't looking for. And I, I thought that, you know, you talked about this idea of like, and I hadn't even thought about this until now, the whole idea of like planning all this through like the start of COVID and that the unexpected can be the best thing for you, even when it doesn't look like it could be the best thing for you. Right. And I think that was something that this book had in it as like a, a nice theme, which was you, you may find that the most unexpected thing in the world may be the best thing to happen for you even when you didn't think so Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that, I'm actually really glad you picked up on that because I kind of, I was trying, that was sort of, I did that sort of intentionally um, to sort of tie the two storylines together because I, I was like, these storylines are very, very different. Um, and I wanted a way to sort of link them. And so that was what I was kind of getting at was that sometimes you get thrown in these situations where you don't have your strengths. Um, and so you have to kind of make do and you wind up sort of coming up with something better. And that was, that was kind of the overarching theme that I was going for to tie, like to tie the two storylines together mm -hmm. anyway. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I th think it's really cool and it's fun when like those things end up working out, you know, in the story. So, um, and I think you're right. It definitely does help the book feel more cohesive in that way. And, and so I'm really glad um, I loved the the and I thought it was really fun the story of stolen treasure that mm -hmm. aren't really treasures like everybody like yeah. the idea right. that like it's it's really only treasure because of the value that's put into it like the Betazoid so I uh, you mentioned wanting to explore the Betazoid culture and all of those things so I would love to hear about uh, that because in all honesty there's not a lot about Betazoid culture that we know right. right. Yeah. Um, and I, I realized that when I started writing this book <laughs> um, and I, I, I almost, I started just sort of making stuff up and I was kind of like, are they going to let me do this? <laughs> I wasn't sure. Someone made it all <laughs> so up was, at some point, Cassandra, even yeah, though a lot of fans um, don't realize that someone made it all right. up at some point. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's actually a good point. Um, so I was really kind of pleased where they didn't make me really change any of the Betazoid yeah. stuff that I came up with. Um, but yeah, one of the things, so what I've always liked about the Betazoids, because we really just see them through Lexana. We don't even really see them through through Troy because she didn't really grow up on Betazoid. Right. Um, and Lux, you know, Lexana comes across as sort of this kind of aristocratic woman. And she's, you know, she has all her titles and she talks about being the keeper of the sacred chalices and all this stuff. And I was really kind of hung up on that. And I was sort of interested in it because they're members of the Federation. And so it was this, this idea of this sort of socialist utopia, but then you have this culture that it feels to have this sort of aristocracy to them. And so I was kind of interested in exploring how that might work. Um, and so I kind of, I thought, well, their treasures aren't going to be treasures in the way a Ferengi would see them, um, but they're going to be, have cultural value and sort of artistic value um, and sort of like the value of story. That was something I was, I was really playing with. Um, with that whole, you know, that whole sequence and the crazy pageant and everything. So um, I wanted to kind of show how what's important to the Betazoids are sort of their cultural stories. And then these objects just represent that. Um, and that's why they have all these titles and they have all these ceremonies and they have all this stuff um, because they're just, they're playing with, they understand the importance of these cultural stories. And so it's not about sticking to tradition for tradition's sake. And it's not about thinking you're better than one group of people thinking they're better than another. It's just about celebrating these stories. Um, and so that was what I, I kind of, that was sort of my my inspiration for the Betazoids stuff in the book. And then also I just wanted an excuse to put them in like cool costumes <laughs> and, and do kind of crazy ceremonies and things because it felt like that's what they would do <laughs> based on how they're presented in the show. Maybe we'll see some of those costumes at conventions coming up. Get some yeah, lit that would verse be cosplayers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where were you, uh, like, since you're making up a lot of the things then for Beta Z, where are you pulling from 
um, to kind of get those ideas historically or, or what were you kind of using as a reference then for this aristocratic house system? Yeah, I mean, I was definitely pulling sort of from like European history. Um, and, and especially I was kind of thinking about sort of like the the British aristocracy system and, and how you have these sort of old families and they have like these houses that are tied to the families and they may not necessarily have money anymore. They just have the title. Um, and so it was kind of, I kind of looked at that because because Britain um, is one of the, the few places where the, the aristocracy sort of survived and now they just, they're sort of this weird institution. They don't really have any power. Um, so I was thinking Betazoid would be something similar to that. They would have all these houses and they would pass the lineage down, but the real power is going to be like in elected officials because they are still a federation planet um, so i was definitely kind of inspired by that and sort of what a modern sort of socialist utopia aristocracy would look like yeah and well and it was interesting too because like on top of that you added in this kind of like secret police layer mm-hmm. for yeah. them which was very interesting to kind of see them having and so like where did that all come from in the story because that was a really interesting layer um that was the first of all i was shocked they let me get away with that <laughs> <laughs> to be honest <laughs> um but yeah that was that was more i was really i was really just trying to develop like twists and turns right um and i wanted to give Avi- aviana i wanted her to have some kind of, I wanted there to be some kind of twist there. Um, and some of it was just sort of plot stuff, you know, I'm going back and forth with my editor and, and making sure things fit in canon. And there was something I had written that honestly, now I don't remember what it was. She's like, this isn't going to work. Um, oh no, I, I do remember what it was now. It was, it was that I wanted Aviana to go down on the planet with them. Um, and if she's just a civilian, they're not going to do that. Right. Um, so I had to make her something, I had to give her some reason why she could go mm-hmm. down on the planet. Um, and so that, so I just, I had been watching Picard and then had, you had the, the, uh, the Romulan secret police, um, the Tal Shiar. Um, and so I was, what if Betazoid had something like that or Betazoid had something like that? Um, and so that's, it just kind of rolled out from there. Um, and then it's also just kind of the, the idea of psychics being spies and especially Betazoid culture kind of why would they ever need to lie? But how would you, what would it be like to be a spy in that culture? So it just sort of spun off kind of like world building questions. Um, that again, I was shocked they let me kind of explore that a little bit. Well, it is good. It is good world building because I would expect that most worlds probably would have at some point in their history, a police force, security force, spy force, whatever like this. But in Star Trek, we so often get these monolithic cultures until they mm become the centerpiece like the Cardassians or the Ferengi on DS9. Once they become the centerpiece of something, we start to learn more about them. But, you know, Beta Z is one of those planets that's mostly just been referenced. We've never had a chance to really explore it. So I love that element as well, because it is starting to bring to life the worlds of the Federation in a way that you would you would expect they probably are, but you just don't get that chance to uh, get that glimpse very often. Well, and, and one of the things that I really thought was really interesting when you talked a little bit about was this idea of then melding it with um, the Ferengi that we meet here and the fact that that links with a lot of what we kind of saw in Deep Space Nine happening um, with the secret network of female Ferengi who are 
using this cloak and dagger type of, of mysterium to create this mystique, which allows them to be able to do business. And so where did, like, where did that come from in the story? Um, and, and kind of working all of that in to the whole like stolen treasure. Right. Um, well, I mean, it, it kind of came directly from Rules of Acquisition, the DS Night episode um, where you meet Pell, um, the, the female Ferengi uh, who does who disguises herself as a man. And I always loved that episode. And I always, I just always, I actually really loved sort of the Ferengi arc, like cultural arc in that um, in that show, where that you start to see women kind of trying like fighting for their rights, but then their rights are just to be capitalists, which I thought was funny. Um, and so I just, I just like that idea. And I, I wanted to kind of bring it in and, you know, in terms of how it sort of came into the book again, I, I needed, I needed a villain. Somebody, somebody needed to have stolen the items and they needed a reason for it. Um, and so I thought, well, Ferengi, right. And then, you know, Ferengi who maybe can maybe have to operate in the shadows. Well, Lady Ferengi, that makes sense. Um, and so that was where it kind of, how it kind of came together. Um, and just wanting to sort of explore more of these, these sort of renegade females, females um, who are trying to find ways to sort of earn profit and be Ferengi um, when they can't really yet <laughs> in Ferengi culture. But it's, we know it's sort of working that towards that from DS9. Yeah, it was cool. It was like an expansion of the DS9 story in that sense. And and it kind of gave us an opportunity to be able to see that, you know, Pell isn't the only one who's mm-hmm. in this, you know, and Moogie either, you know, they're not right. the only two, you know, this is something that, and it, and it really then helped this creating this mystery about this Baron and, you know, this whole idea that it would be somebody who is hidden and that would have a secret and want to keep it and would be, have to be in the shadows. And so, no, I thought all of that really worked um, well and was a lot of fun then to be able to get to that reveal. And you're like, oh, yeah, duh. Like, <laughs> of course, like this makes so much sense. So um, and then on the whole other side, you have, you know, this planet that Riker, Crusher and Data are on. And it's all about these aliens in this dreamland. Mm-hmm. And like, I was fascinated with this idea of these kind of like dream weavers. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I couldn't stop singing the song in my head. <laughs> I won't do it here. But, and then um, you booted up the software so, like, and where, you started creating exactly, websites. Exactly. And, yeah. uh, I kept seeing like signals in the sky. <laughs> it was really, anyway, where, where did this idea come from? Because this was a really fascinating idea of an alien species who live through dreams. Yeah. So that came from me being really fascinated or kind of going through a a period of being fascinated by cosmic horror um, and and just sort of reading a lot of sort of cosmic horror stuff. Um, And I, you know, I've written a lot of sort of original sci-fi books and I always love those sort of big idea sci-fi books, especially ones where you have these aliens that are completely inhuman. So I wanted to have that idea of an alien that is so different from us in the way they think and the way they communicate that there's a huge communication barrier. And I think that's, Mm -hmm. you know, that gets explored in Star Trek all the time. Those are some of my favorite episodes. Um, So a lot of it was wanting to kind of do that. But then I was also like, 
you know, I was reading all this like sort of Lovecraft and stuff, and it talks about, you know, the the Lovecraft monsters sort of dreaming and creating the world through dreams. And I thought that's such a cool sort of poetic idea that I thought, why not? I, why don't I just make it Star Trek <laughs> and make it wholesome, right? Um, so that was kind of where all of that sort of came from, was sort of that those blend of interests I had at the time that I was, I was working through the book. Mm. Well, it's interesting too, because you said it gets explored in Star Trek all the time, but actually not as much as you would think the presence of aliens that are truly different than us. We occasionally get those, but more often than not, we get aliens that either we can associate with immediately, or it's just a language barrier that can be overcome by the universal translator. Right. But, but here we have something that truly is beyond our comprehension and creates a mystery. Yeah, that, that was definitely um, just something I, I, I just I just love those kinds of stories. And I see what you're saying that like most because most of the aliens in Star Trek, like they just look sort of look weird. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, but if they're the center, of, sometimes if they're the center of the episode, then we get an yeah, episode where yeah. they communicate. <laughs> um, but yeah, the universal the universal translator breaks and then then we get an episode. Right. With with kind of like coming up with the way in which these aliens kind of communicate and like I'm just fascinated with the idea of like creating this culture and like it was so alien and that's one of the things that I liked about it is is that it it actually felt like we were exploring something completely new mm-hmm. and I, I thought um, so for for you how did you keep it straight? Like when you're, because this is really world creation. So like in your process, do you go in and kind of like bullet point how all of this works so you can keep it straight in your own mind? Because <laughs> this is, <laughs> this is definitely, we're, we're sky tripping here. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, um, I definitely had to write it. I kind of wrote it out. It, it, a lot of it came in in the revision stage, right? So I, when I was writing or when I was drafting, I, my goal was make it weird, like make it weird, make it dreamy, make it kind of trippy, um, sort of poetic. Um, so I was just trying to make it weird. Then in the revision stage, that was when I would go through and sort of figure out, okay, now it has to make some kind of sense. Like it has to, like the reader has to know what's going on. They can't just be confused. Um, so that was where I kind of sat down and said, okay, here's what's actually going on. Um, I mean, I went into it knowing they were sort of like a, a hive mind and that they um, they only, they, they there had to be so many people together before they would see them as alive like that was sort of yeah that was really the, interesting the that yeah yeah that so that that I, w- I had that in my head as i was writing it but in terms of like them living in dreams and sort of what they're saying and all the weird stuff she sees on the beach that was me just like i'm gonna just make it weird mm-hmm. um, and then then i had to kind of go back and make sure that it all fit together <clears throat> and it made sense you said you started conceiving the story near the beginning of the pandemic. And just what you said right there, I was just imagining if these aliens were looking at Earth in 2020, they might not think <laughs> that we're alive because there are very few of us together most of the time compared with the usual. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and that's an interesting, like even that is a really interesting, like subtle commentary on the fact that we weren't together at that time period. You know, like we, and I think, 
so many of us ended up learning how much community actually means in our lives and that we needed to be together. And in, in some ways, it it is a commentary on the idea of like itic too. Like putting all that into the basket makes so much sense then of how like even maybe subconsciously the fact that we were so alone for so much of 2020 really brought that to the forefront because even just the way you like describe about her kind of falling basically down the rabbit hole and it felt very Alice in Wonderland in that sense like and you're very alone and like they're trying to figure out what one means like what is the idea of one mean like one is the loneliest number uh and the idea that they can't conceive of that because they're always together and but for us we need to be together we can't just be singular mm-hmm. and I, I thinking more about that i really like that idea yeah yeah i definitely think there was some subtle like pandemic influence that was just sort of seeping into my writing um without you know explicitly being like oh this is going to be about covid uh, and i think that was that was something that definitely kind of came through because i was living in an apartment like I was very isolated while I was mm-hmm. writing that. So I think that's where I was like, community, yeah. I need community. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, and and I think the the reality of then the book, it comes across better because it wasn't just like, okay, I'm going to write about this. You know, mm-hmm. like right. it, I think writers are always much better off when they they just – they write a story out of whatever's happening with not necessarily like I'm I'm trying to say this. It just ends up coming out of you because that's who you are, what's going on. And that's so much more meaningful because it doesn't come across as preachy, you know, right. and it just comes across as like very sincere. And I think that's really cool about this book is that those thematic elements are very sincere in the book and not because you're trying to tell us what to think we're just feeling along with you. Right. And I think that's really awesome. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, I think that writing, you're writing as a writer. I do think that you're very much influenced by what's going on around you and what you're sort of watching and reading and all those things sort of come in and they shine through without you intending on it. You're not saying, Oh, I'm writing about COVID. It's just going to kind of come through. And a lot of these things that I saw, especially like the COVID stuff, I didn't really see until after I had written the book and I'm going, you know, I'm reading the, you have to read, you have to read a book like 500 times before it goes to publication because yeah. you're checking for, you know, grammar and I'm all an that editor, stuff. And I was so doing I that. The <laughs> process okay, yeah, well. So, you know, you yeah. know. <laughs> um, so when I'm in the middle of that yeah. process and I'm reading my book the millionth time, I, that's when I start, I start kind of like literary criticism. I start doing like literary criticism yeah. on my own writing. And that's when those things started coming through. And I was like, wow. Well, yeah, this is where I was at the time that I was writing this, so I guess it makes sense. Um, so I think I think that's it's an interesting thought mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, it's it's just so. I mean, one of the best parts of doing literary treks is the fact of getting inside the brains of the authors and being able to hear like what was it, and and then even unintentionally what was it, you know, that was the influence on on creating these stories and it's it's always so neat it's one of the things i love about behind the scenes stuff when you're like in a movie or tv show you know um and so and part of that too is like you were specifically tasked with writing 
uh, a story that felt like an episode. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I feel like for you, that would not have been difficult loving TNG so much to create that episodic feel. But um, getting into the book, did you go back and wa- watch a bunch of sixth and seventh season of TNG or what helped you kind of get back into that mindset so you could be, you know, know where the characters were story wise and all that? Yeah, I definitely, I definitely went back and watched some of my my favorite episodes, um, sort of later in the season. Um, so Subrosa, of course, you yeah, know, three yeah, times. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but um, yeah, so I, you know, I watched some episodes. I watched some DS Nine episodes as well. Um, with the Frankie, I watched another Frankie episodes because I knew it was gonna it was gonna write about them. Um, and I also just sort of I went into sort of like fan wikis and stuff, um, and and was sort of looking at like I looked up what was known about Beta Z, for example, um, like what had been sort of explored in other sort of meet like other books and things that maybe I hadn't read or hadn't seen. Um, so I did a lot of that as well, just sort of looking up sort of the the sort of a, you know, sort of ones that are focused on the like memory alpha, like looking at all of that kind of stuff. And then stumbling across like fan stuff that people had like made up this whole sort of system for the Betazoids, um, the house system and stuff. And just, it's just sort of like kind of immersing myself in the fandom in a lot of ways um, was another thing that I did as kind of, as I was writing the book and researching it. And you probably read a lot of fan fiction shipping Picard and Lwaxana, right? <laughs> I actually didn't read any fan fiction for this, but I have certainly read it in the past. So, I think though that I mean that's something that is so neat about you know Star Trek and just about any fandom, right? Is the way in which fans kind of take it, make it their own, and then they just make things up to fill in these gaps, you know. And I think you know one of the the cool things that you got an opportunity to do, Chris and I have talked about this a lot because we we do uh, on the network the the Orb podcast, which is all about DS Nine. And one of the things that DS Nine was so good at was that it was about taking it would take these races of people that we had known from TNG and then it would expound upon them and make them less monolithic. And I thought that that was really interesting because you got an opportunity then to do that with a race to which we only know through Luxana. And that's it, you know, Mm -hmm. because Troy, like you said, didn't really grow up on Beta Z. So she doesn't, she's, she's, she's not culturally Beta Mm -hmm. Z. Um, in that and way, the other and so I thought that we was see, really we, fun. We just see glimpses of them. Mm-hmm. We we don't really learn exactly. about the culture very much through them. So, as an episode here of like TNG, you got that opportunity to like expound upon what it means to be a Beta Z and make them all different by not having them all feel like they're just one thing. And I thought that was really fun about the book as well. Yeah, that was that was a lot of fun to write. Um, I also I always I always loved the idea of taking that was something I loved about DS9 was the way it sort of de monolithized these uh, these different races. And that was something that I was really excited to get to do with the Betazoids Um, and just just to kind of play around with world. I love world building in general. So it was a chance to really play around with some Star Trek world building 
Which is so important because that's one of the whole points of doing expanded universe literature is to allow that to happen in a place where it might not be able to happen in a TV show. So I'm really excited that, you know, it seems like the stories now that we'll be getting, we're obviously going to be getting like, you know, discovery books and Picard books and things like that. But these books allow us to then maybe be able to go back and fill in some of those things and, and open up, you know, races and, and, and species that we've seen in the background, but we've never really explored before. So I think that's a lot of fun. Um, well, for you, as we kind of look towards the end, I just, what was the experience like for you? to get this opportunity, especially in a universe that you loved so much um, and to, you know, finally have your first book in it be released. Yeah. I mean, it was very exciting. Um, And like I mentioned earlier, it was also kind of terrifying. Um, I felt like I had a lot of pressure um, sort of that I was almost putting on myself because I love TNG so much. Um, You know, I had written in the Halo universe I like Halo. I played the games. Um, you know, I was familiar with it, but it wasn't like something I adored. Um, and I also got to make up my own characters. So I wasn't playing around with like established characters. So with this, with the Star Trek book, it's like not only am I writing in this world that I adore, I'm writing these characters that I adore and I have to find their voices and I have to kind of get into how they think. Um, and they're not characters I created, right? Um, so that was very challenging for me. And so I had a lot of almost like angst about it. I was like, oh my God, this is, it was, it felt very, very difficult at times. There were times where it just, it felt so challenging. Um, but it was also really rewarding, um, you know, at the end when I'm reading the final version and I've got, you know, I've got all the the canon changes and all of that stuff and and then kind of getting to see you know, sort of my ideas, the fact that they're now sort of part of Star Trek, like some of the stuff I came up with for the Betazoids and all of that, um, that is just like an incredible feeling. Um, And like I said, you know, I started, when I sort of started my writing career, it was when I was falling back in love with TNG, like that happened at the same time. Um, So it's just very fitting that kind of sort of 10 years on, I got to release a TNG book and that's just kind of amazing like it just feels really surreal and if you had told me that in 2008 oh yeah you're gonna publish a TNG book I feel like you're lying that's (laughs) not gonna happen that's never gonna happen (laughs) that I mean it's so it's so awesome and and I think the thing that's so beautiful is how the the fans um uh, people that are fans when they get to work on the material, you know, they don't take it for granted. And I think that definitely shows in the book is, is how much you love it and how much you care for it. And so um, for you, love to give you an opportunity then to to tell everybody, you know, where they can find you, um, where they can follow you and catch up with what you've got going on. And also too, what else that you have out there that they should be picking up? All right, yeah. So um, the easiest way to find me online is just search Cassandra Rose Clark. Um, and my website will pop up and then I have a link to all my social media. Um, my Twitter handle is absolutely terrible to say out loud. And I didn't realize it when I was coming up with it, but it's at C R C S E E 
O-R-S-E-A, and it's a pun on my initials, and that's why it's so confusing. Um, but uh, I am on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Facebook. But like I said, if you find my website, you can find me. Um, that's probably the easiest way. Um, I do have, I have a lot of books out. Um, you know, I have been telling people that if you enjoyed this one, especially the Crusher plot with the sort of weird inhuman aliens, my most recent book, which is Forget This Ever Happened, it's a YA novel, um, but don't let that scare you if you're not a YA reader, um, because it's very much in that vein of dealing with sort of weird inhuman aliens. And there's it was it was it was really kind of inspired by Philip K. Dick, so it's sort of like weird Philip K. Dickian sci-fi um, that's also YA. Um, and that book just recently came out, um, so it's available in bookstores. Um, and then I also have a fantasy adult fantasy novel coming out at the top of 2022 called The Beholden which is just sort of a standard adventure fantasy. Um, But if you go to my website, you can see all my other books that I've written. I've written quite a few, some fantasy, some sci-fi. I have a book of poetry. Um, So you can just kind of take a look and if anything strikes your fancy, you can pick it up. That's awesome. That's awesome. Do you know if you'll have any other Star Trek books that'll be coming out? I have no idea. (laughs) But if I get asked, I will certainly uh, not turn it down. And I, I've got one more question. I'm thinking about this. So you got to write a TNG book. So if you could pick any other series uh, and any other characters to focus on, what would it be? So this is going to sound really weird, but I, well, okay. So this is and in another series. I would actually love to write a lower decks book. I think that would, <laughs> that would be, be super interesting. Fun. Um, <laughs> it would be, it would just be, so referential, I guess. Um, I think that would be a lot of fun. But my sort of dream book, and I've mentioned this on other podcasts, would be to write a book about Loxana Troy, um, maybe DS9 era, um, but just seeing her being an ambassador, mm. like seeing her doing ambassador stuff. Um, and that's something that I think would be really fun to write and explore. I Well, and what's kind of cool is, I mean, I'm thinking you could also use that as an opportunity to basically do her whole life story as well. Like really give us, yeah, no, I, that is awesome. So, well, I'm so excited that we got a chance to talk to you and it is so great to meet you and have you on literary tracks. Hopefully, you know, you'll get to write another star Trek book so we can have you back. Um, but I just think the neatest thing is we were talking about at the beginning. It's so great to have a new voice in Star Trek literature and, um, you know, the excitement and, and just the sheer joy that I can even see on your face. Like when you're getting to talk about what you got to do is so awesome. And I just I love when I, we get to see like people's dreams come true like that, you know, and be a part of the fandom that they love. And so I, I'm just super excited for you. Well, thanks. Thanks so much for having me on. It's been really fun, like kind of doing all these Star Trek podcasts and just getting to talk about Star Trek. (laughs) Bruce, it is always so much fun to be able to have authors on the show. And I'm so grateful that uh, we have a brand new author here in Cassandra for the uh, Star Trek series, you know, and and as we talked about in the news segment, you know, Star Trek is going to be going in a different direction with the books, you know, in the way that it's going to be handling things. And so getting some fresh blood in there, not a terrible idea. I know. I mean, I love the authors that have always been writing the Star Trek books in the last decade or more. 
I'm, I can always rely on them. I know what I'm going to get, but it is very interesting to bring someone new in and see what they bring to the table. And, you know, she knows her stuff. She knows her Star Trek. So, you know, kudos to her. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I think th- what I've always noticed uh, for the most part is that the best writers in any franchise are people who actually love the franchise. And she definitely loves the franchise. So that's super exciting. Uh, well, Bruce, you know, before we get out of here, let everybody know, of course, where they could find you. I'm on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. That's Admiral, then the underline Rex. And I'm also on the Star Wars report, which, yeah, we're wrapping that show up when we reach episode 501, which is wow. amazing because that show has been on for more than a decade. Uh, but who knows when it ends, which will probably be in the spring of 22. Uh, it will conti- it may continue on to something else or occasional episode. So I wouldn't say it's quite dead, dead, but it's it's yeah nearly dead but we'll see and then of course i'm i know it's so sad and then uh positively trek is the other podcast i do with dan gunther where we talk everything about star trek even to the books and the comics and the episodes and the merchandise and uh yeah just whatever (laughs) that's it Awesome. Uh, well, of course, uh, you know, you can find me all over the place, Matt Rushing 2 on all the social media platforms. Of course, uh, you can also uh, find me here on the network doing the 602 Club, which is our general geek show talking about all of the fandoms we love. Of course, Snyder Cuts in that feed with John Mills talking about all the things that Zack Snyder's directed. Uh, you can also, of course, find me uh, here as well with Chris Jones talking about Star Trek Deep Space Nine on the Orb, uh, and which is always a ton of fun. I love getting to, to talk about that. And uh, over on the Nerd Party Network, doing a couple of shows. One is Outpost with Drea Kaufman, where we talked about each and every chapter of the Harry Potter series, one chapter at a time. And last but not least... The one and only John Mills doing aggressive negotiations with him, a Star Wars podcast. And, you know, we just get together every every week and talk something fun in the Star Wars universe. So thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one. <laughs>